Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 93. 93. <laughs> I was starting to say 93 and I was like, I do this every time and it's weird. <laughs> How can I make it less weird? I know I'll stop right in the middle. <laughs> 93. <laughs> nope, that definitely made it less weird. I it definitely, it was smooth. It like flowed, oh my. I think. Everybody's going to be like, you know what? She t- she finally nailed it. She finally, <laughs> after 93 episodes, she found her flow. <laughs> <laughs> I am not good under pressure. Like, you know those places where you, like, walk up and order? I can't do those. No. Like, if you stand in a line and then I'll have something in my head and I'll be like, tacos, tacos, tacos. tacos. As soon as I get to the top, I'll be like, roast beef sandwich. Like, I don't know why. I am too the same. Much I have so much ordering anxiety, especially with breakfast stuff for some reason, because I never know exactly what I want when really yeah. I just want like pancakes or like biscuit. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I was like, Ben, you have to like edit my orders because I would order every time I'd be like, um, I'm going to have, I'm going to get the biscuit. I'm going to get the biscuit and gravy. I'm going to get the biscuit. And then I'd be like, eggs Benedict. And then you don't like three things on that. Like you don't like ham. You don't like eggs. And I'm sure you don't like something else. Like, what is it that you want on that? I'm like, I don't know. It just seems like something more I should get. I know. I always- or like a frittata. I'm like, no, who wants a fucking frittata? Nobody. I mean, I like frittata. Well, yeah, but I can make but, a frittata. It's not yeah. what I want when I'm going for brunch. I know. I always think, like, I want, obviously, the thing that's the most delicious, which is usually the worst for you. And yes. then I'll know that I want that, but then I'll, like, panic. And like, then off I a fruit cup. Some, yeah. I'll have grapefruit yeah. sections. And then I'll just stare at everybody else's <laughs> food. You know yeah. what? When we're allowed to go back out again, I'm ordering what I want. <laughs> I'm ordering what I want. That's my pledge to you, Jen. Yes. Everyone. <laughs> everyone, just order what you want. Order what you want. Or don't go out to eat. Make it my uh my friend Erin, Dr. Dude Fox, her husband Jeff, introduced this concept to me years and years ago, and I love it. If you're going out to eat, make it count. Make, make it this, count. Make it count. Order the thing that you would never make at home. Order the thing you want. And if you if there isn't some that something that is gonna like that counts, like, that is going to be worth it, then don't go. Like, don't yeah. eat there. Don't, I, like, don't waste calories or an experience on crappy fast food that you don't care about and that you eat and then you're like, why did I do that? Yeah, I used to always say, what would Tony order? Like, Anthony Bourdain. Like, oh. what, would Tony, what would Tony do? What would, what Tony, would Tony do? do? He like, would he would order the thing that they are most famous for. The, he wouldn't give a fuck about calories or ingredients or whatever. It was always just like, what is the best thing you have on this menu? That's what I want to eat. Right. He would have the experience. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I'm vegan, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really talk to Tony that much these days. 
Also, rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain. Right. Right, 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 right. Um, Now you have to be like, what would Dustin do? What would Dustin do? Yeah. Our good pal, Dustin Harder. He's a vegan chef. Actually, his book is coming out. I was going to, I'm going to do that another time when when it comes out. But I also, you can pre-order it right now. It's called Epic Vegan Quick and Easy. It's on Amazon. And while you're waiting for that amazing book, to come out, you can go ahead and buy all of his other books, like yeah. Epic Vegan, Simply Vegan. They're all amazing. Yeah. So, so what would Dustin do? What would Dustin do? He's going <laughs> to fucking Dustin... love this, by the way. <laughs> hey, I Dustin. Think Dustin would be like, get into your quick gates. <laughs> yeah. That's like, actually, that's exactly what he would say. All right. Let's do our quickies. All right. Okay. Sally, I feel like I already know the answer to this question. <laughs> Is it going to be because I'm boring? No, it's going to be because you're a human being. Um, by the way, this is an article, uh, came from an article for Deadline written by Eric Peterson. But um, what's your take on people talking in the movie theater? I'm I'm very much against it. Mm-hmm. Although at times it can be real funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. Yes. There can be like, it can be a moment of levity, but I, in general, very much against it. Like I'm very, it makes me anxious the whole time. And I just want to be like, shut up, shut up. Um, I don't so, like seeing people's cell phone lights. Yeah. I don't like, yeah, people talking. I don't. You know, I don't even like people talking during the part where you're just watching the like advertisements in the beginning. No, because it makes me it makes me feel like you're they're never going to you're never going to shut up. You you don't understand the etiquette here, and you are not going to stop it. But yeah, one time we went to a movie, and so this was during the credits. So that was this was okay. But so we watched this movie, and I think it was called Street Kings, and there's like four people in the theater. So we watched the movie. It's so bad. And all of a sudden, it's like the movie's over. It's quiet. Nobody says anything or moves. And then just from behind us, this kid goes, damn, that movie was shitty as hell. (laughs) (laughs) And we were all like, yeah, because it was shitty as hell. (laughs) Okay, that's acceptable. That's acceptable. I would would accept accept that. That's good. (laughs) Well, this January 9th inside a movie theater right here in our own backyard, Sally. Okay. AMC Camp Creek 14 here in Atlanta. A woman and her wife were just watching a movie, and um, apparently the group behind them were being way too loud and talking. So, of course, she turned around and shushed them, and they got into a big argument when all of a sudden, 20. 20-year-old Cameron King pulled out a handgun from his <gasps> girlfriend, Yvonne Crawford, also 22 years old, from her purse and shot her. What? Yes. Shot her. Luckily, he shot her in the shoulder. Luckily, the victim, it doesn't say her name, but luckily the victim was able to leave the theater around 9:10 that evening and ran to a nearby drugstore for help, and she suffered non-life-threatening in- injuries. Thank God. And witnesses all reported hearing a single gunshot inside the theater. So they fled the scene and then the police were finally able to track them down in Indiana and they were taken um, into custody by U.S. Marshals and they've been charged with aggravated assault and possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, so maybe everybody just needs to shut the fuck up. (laughs) Also, why were they at the movies? Why were they at the movies? Oh, yeah, you're right. Why were they at the movies? This is the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, yeah, yeah. But thank God the woman is okay. But... Man, I'm going to totally get this story wrong, so I'll have to get a correction from Dr. Dudefuck, but she one time was at a movie theater with her husband, and I can't remember if, like, it's like somebody was mad at somebody by the end of the movie because, like, they were kicking the seat Mm -hmm. or, like, they were too close, and so she and her husband got into, like, kind of an argument with this other couple and after the movie theater, and... One of them threw their soda on her husband, and then (gasps) she threw her soda on them. And she was like, and the whole thing was so crazy because we're we walk out, and I realize we're still wearing those dumb 3D glasses. Oh my god! Um, I have to have to get the full story from her, but it reminded me of that in a much, you know, like. Still yeah. crazy, but uh, at least it wasn't a gun. It was just like a Coke thrown at someone. We, I remember being at Men in Black and uh, <laughs> with a group of my friends from high school and like three rows behind us, something happened and a grown woman got into a fight with a teenage girl. And then the teenage, uh, and then the grown woman's t- other teenage daughter got involved. And then it was the grown woman and a teenage daughter beating up another teenage girl. And then the lights had to get turned on and they like we all had to leave and they gave everybody back their money. But like, holy shit, it was nuts. <laughs> I think it just had something to do with like walking past her in a seat and like not saying excuse me or something. Yeah. But, like nice example, lady. Right, right, right. <laughs> Can you imagine getting into a fist fight with your mom? No, but I'd be like, damn, my mom's badass. <laughs> Um, well, that's, that's a Let's disturbing story. Let's all go story. to the movie. Let's all go to the movie. <laughs> well, I have another, um, another crazy couple. So this is from the Tri-City Herald by Kristen Kramer, and it's a story from West Richland, Washington. So uh, a husband and wife who aren't named in the article are both facing separate drunk driving charges after she was arrested while trying to follow the patrol car carrying him on his drunk driving charge to jail. Oh, my God. So double husband... Double DUIs? Double DUIs. So the the call came in to police just after 11 p.m. on March 6th, and someone said there was a reckless driver in a construction site. And so the officer came, and he saw that there was a truck doing like donuts and then was like driving around kind of erratically through this construction site. And so the officer stopped the, the driver and it was the husband and the wife was in the passenger seat at the time. And the guy said, I live in the area. I was just checking things out. And the husband refused to do a voluntary field sobriety test or breathalyzer. He claimed he had been watching the fights and had three or four drinks in about an hour before the traffic stopped. So he was arrested on suspicion of a DUI for because he smelled like booze. And mm-hmm. he also was driving out on a construction site. And so the husband was arrested and taken to jail in this police cruiser. And the woman somehow, she must have lived nearby because she got her own 
Jeep, got into her own vehicle, not the one that they were in. But when like one of the officers who left the scene noticed a woman following him. And so he stopped along the road and and was like- And she pulled herself over. And she pulled herself behind him. And so he went to her car and was like, what are you doing? And she was like, I'm just following my husband to jail. And he was like, well, first of all, he's in a different police cruiser. He's already at the jail. And so she then got back in her car, makes a quick U-turn. And they were like, oh, that woman's drunk too. So they start following her. (laughs) She's going at like 50 miles an hour. And they finally catch up with her at the parking lot of the police uh, station. And they're like, okay, you are drunk driving. And she was like, no, I wasn't drunk driving. You was my husband you you arrested. And they were like, yeah, but you drove yourself here. <laughs> you smell like alcohol and your speech is slurred. And she was like, oh, oh no. And then she told them she'd had about three drinks that night along with medication. And then she added that she was pregnant and having (gasps) a bad week i know i know but let's at this point i just want to remind everybody that all of the all of the like studies that have to do with women and drinking during pregnancy Mm -hmm. all were done with cocaine addicts so the only real studies that were done with women in pregnancy only show that when women were drinking a ton like every night up to five or six drinks a night like that is when there was fetal what? alcohol sy- syndrome and that there is what? no evidence that having one or two drinks every night during your pregnancy have any effect on a fetus. And I am I am not a doctor. This is just something I read in a get book. Get Dr. Dudefuck on the line. I'll get sweet. Dr. Dudefuck on the line. But of course, doctors can't say, yes, it's safe to drink. Whoa. But there was – there are like That's studies in, like in Europe where it's much more – common to drink during pregnancy like Mm kind of you know just like drink like a glass of wine um they have done studies and they actually have shown that women who drink like you know three drinks a week when they're pregnant are um, way more chill way more chill also their babies have a one point higher iq on average that's not correlated but (laughs) you know weird yeah so anyway that's the Man, I remember like finally getting the like not that I, I kept, not that I was asking every time, uh-huh. <laughs> but I remember like at the end of my pregnancy, um, you know, they say the last like couple of months, yeah, mo- the last month you could have like a glass of wine with dinner. But by then, I had so much acid reflux, I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't even drink water, let alone no, same, wine. yeah. I mean, I but- like probably had two beers during my pregnancy because I had such bad. Like I was not so nauseous. So like yeah. I ended up not having all the things that they tell you not to, like coffee and whatever. But I did um I read this book called Expecting Better, is what it's mm. called. Expecting Better. And it's a woman, she did all of this, she looked at all of the research and basically was like, This is what the research says. Like, here are the things that we're told. Some of it's old wives' tales, some of it is like, you know eating lunch meat and she was like so here is all the uh, the you know so you can make an informed decision based on the real science science and then she's like and this is what i have chosen to do as i am pregnant and uh and it's really interesting it was very liberating for me while i was pregnant it's very interesting yeah Hmm. Hmm. too bad i'm not having any more kids right (laughs) 
Because I would be. It is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I don't, I hope that doesn't come off as irresponsible. I just, I'm not encouraging anybody to drink while they're pregnant. I think Mm -hmm. it's, I just also want to. Share that information. Just share that information that there actually is not solid evidence about like having a drink a night. But either way, this woman was over the legal limit of 0.08 and she was arrested. Both of the couple have been released from the jail. And uh, on Facebook, the West Richland police said, it isn't wise to jump in a car and chase the police who just arrested your husband for DUI when you have also been drinking alcohol. Please don't drink and drive, which is something I think we can all get behind. Yes. Yeah. I stand by that message. Definitely don't drink and drive. Definitely don't drink and drive. Oh, man. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for the true crime portion of our episode? I am. All right. So this story came from an article for Newsweek.com, an article for Medium.com called uh, True Crime Addiction, written by Lisa Marie Fuqua. Okay. Article for Bakersfield.com, written by Jason Kotowski, an episode of Dateline, and then kind of an episode of this new show called Killer in Plain Sight. It was so fucking terrible. I had to shut it off. Okay. So I don't recommend this new true crime show. I like started okay. to watch it. And like it so like, terrible as in the details or terrible just in the the making of it? Just, yeah, the making of the it. The production. Just, it's like <laughs> they're interviewing actual detectives and police officers, but those detectives and police officers had nothing to do with the case. And it's very, it's like scripted, but they're not actors. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah. the problem with blah, blah, blah was that such and such and such. And I don't know. It didn't seem like a good idea. Like that, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. like not believable, but it's like not scripted enough and then also not reality enough, just like garbage. Right. I you know gotcha. what I mean? I have definitely watched those shows. Yes. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> all right. So married on um, August 19th of 2000, Rob and Sabrina Lamone were what their friends called the perfect couple. They were married with two kids. They had a boy and a girl, each born within a few years of each other. And they lived in this town called Silver Lakes, which is a town in California just outside of the Mojave Desert. They, it's called the happiest place in the high desert. This is like the pit, most picture-perfect town. Everyone that knew them said that they were just always madly in love with each other. Like, even though they were married for a long time, they were super affectionate. They had cute nicknames for each other. Friends said that they never fought with each other. So Rob had wanted to be a firefighter, apparently, but he actually took a job as a railway mechanic, which he ended up loving once he started working there. And Sabrina worked at Costco giving out free samples. Ooh. Yeah. She lived in the happiest place doing the happiest job. Is that the happiest job? I feel like that job would annoy me. <laughs> oh, no. I would hate it, but I just feel like you do make people happy because they're like, feel like you're giving she them She makes the food. people happy. Yeah. Yeah. But my sister, I'll never forget when my sister had a job, not at Costco, but she had a job at the front desk. She's a lawyer now, but she had a job at working at the front desk of a law firm. And she had this big bowl of like chocolates at the front desk. And she said that every 
day, a thousand times a day, somebody would walk up to the bowl and be like, mm, I shouldn't, but <laughs> mm, I'll, I'll take one and like make a whole thing about it. And yeah. then she just had to sit there and smile and nod and like not want to kill these people. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the funniest thing to me. But it, that's what I picture if you're like the Costco sample person, like, mm, I guess. And then like, if they don't like it, then you have to listen to the like critique of your mini wiener. Right. You know, I didn't fucking make it. Like Exactly. (laughs) So uh, I wouldn't want that job. Anyway, so but they had a really close knit group of friends. The group of friends actually referred to themselves as the wolf pack is what they called themselves. They had t-shirts and everything. All right. Um, That's nice. Yeah. The Wolf Pack, their group of friends said that Rob and Sabrina were kind of the center of the group and the glue that held their group of friends together. They said that they were just so happy and fun loving. And their closest set of friends were another married couple, a woman named Kelly Bernatine, who was a hairstylist. And Sabrina had met her when she had hired her to do her hair. at, And they met at the salon and they totally hit it off. And then her husband... Jason, who was a fireman, when Jason met Rob, he said he was a little nervous at first because Rob was like this big tattooed guy. Uh Um, But then he quickly learned that Rob was just the sweetest guy ever, just like a big old teddy bear. Yeah. And so uh, the wolf pack were very close. All of their kids were friends. They would go on vacations together. They would party and hang out together. And they would also have sex together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Good for them. Good appar- for them. Yeah. I mean, so apparently some of them, I don't know that all of them, but some of them had opened up their marriages and they would swap partners. Okay. Okay. So like some sources make it sound a lot more innocent, just like, you know, they would swap partners sometimes. And then some articles are like, oh, they hosted orgies all the time. But I think that they probably just swap partners sometimes. Right. So on August 11th, 2014, Rob celebrated his 38th birthday. He had a big party with all of his friends and family around him. The whole wolf pack was there. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, on top of the world, surrounded by everyone that he loved. But what none of them knew was that just one week later, Rob would be dead. <sighs> And very sad. Rob had gone to work at a um, remote railway site in Tehachapi. Uh-huh. Um, and he was actually not supposed to work that day. He was covering a shift for another coworker. And when he never came back home and wasn't responding to Sabrina's text messages, she started to get nervous. And then around 9 p.m. that evening, one of his coworkers who had come in to take over found him on the floor of his work site, um, bleeding, bleeding from the head. He had been shot two times. And the coworker immediately called 911. Yeah. So when Sabrina found out, she was devastated. And of course, so were his children. And everyone was, all of his friends and family, because he was so beloved. And no one could understand, like, how or why this happened. When detectives inspected the scene, they saw that a computer was missing, drawers had been opened, it was made to look like a robbery, which they always are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that didn't really make sense. You know, like, there wasn't much to steal at this railway site. Right. And it, it was such a weird remote location, you know? Yeah. And what's more interesting is that they didn't find any shell casings. 
which made it look like the killer had planned the murder or at least thought about it enough to pick up the casings right. and take them with them. So the only real evidence that they had was the bullet that was in Rob's head. They were able to extract one bullet. And then there was security footage from the industrial complex of of someone walking around the complex, carrying a bag and limping. And it shows them walking into the garage and then Mm -hmm. out again, right around the time that Rob would have been killed. But it was from very far away. So they really couldn't tell who this person was. So who was this person? That's what I want to know. Who was he? I feel like you're going to tell us. You'll find out. So (laughs) they looked into who would want to kill Rob and they were stuck. Like he was a great guy and everybody loved him. They looked into the co-worker's background, the one that who Rob was covering for that day to see, did anybody want to have him killed? Oh, like as a mistaken identity? Yeah. But they couldn't find anything on that end either. And the Wolfgang was... um, uh, stuck you know uh-huh uh the wolf pack sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wolf gang mozart um yeah, the wolf uh, pack okay so they were stunned they couldn't understand either who would want to hurt rob and so on august 14 2014 on what should have been rob and sabrina's 14th wedding anniversary friends and family all gathered together for Rob's funeral. Like how sad, man. That's so like, sad. Horrible. So Sabrina was so upset that her friend Kelly had to like speak for her and she ended at the funeral and she ended up reading a letter that Sabrina had written Rob in 2009, just like a nice letter telling him how appreciative she is of everything that he does for the family and what an amazing guy he is and so all of her friends and family rallied around Sabrina and the kids and Rob also had a $300,000 life insurance policy which was left to Sabrina as well. So while detectives are still investigating they found that a nearby business across the street from the site that Rob was working at they were able to get footage of every car and and one motorcycle that drove up and down the street on the day of the murder. Uh-huh. Um, so they were able to um, track down. They took stills of like every car, and they were able to track down every car, like who belonged to what they were doing there that day. And everybody had a reason to be there, you know. But the only person that they couldn't account for was the the motorcycle. Okay. So and they were not able to identify, locate, or identify who this motorcyclist was and so the police are at a standstill until they get a phone call um and so jump to two weeks after rob's death rob's friend jason got a voicemail jay remember jason of jason and kelly yes their best friend yeah, yeah. Okay, so jason got a voicemail from a 24 year old man named jonathan hearn And Jonathan told Jason that he wanted to sit down and talk to him and his wife, Kelly, both so that he could, uh, as he said, make himself right with the Lord, that he had to tell them something. Yeah. Okay. So who this Jonathan guy was, Jonathan had worked with Jason at the Redlands Fire Department. One night, Jason brought Jonathan out and introduced him to the wolf pack. And Jonathan knew right away that he wanted to be a part of this group, uh-huh. probably because of all of the sex. Right? No, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, 
he would, but it like he hung out and he got to know everybody. And then he would text Jason like obsessively almost like, when can we all hang out again? Can't wait to hang out again. You guys are so great. And so Jonathan seemed to have taken a special liking to Sabrina, Rob's wife. Um, So Jonathan was a devout Christian. He grew up in a very religious family. He really connected to Sabrina because she too was also very religious. Also, one of Jonathan's jobs at the fire department was to buy all the food for the fire station. So he would go to Costco to get everything Uh in bulk. Makes sense financially. Makes sense. And so... That, and obviously that's where Sabrina works. So they, he would, you know, go get some samples uh-huh. and they would talk pretty regularly. And actually Kelly, Sabrina's friend, said that that night that Jonathan first hung out with everybody, she got the sense that she had no that they already knew each other. Okay. You know, like that wasn't her first time like meeting this guy. She, she just had this feeling. Uh-huh. Um, so... One day when Rob was at Jason and Kelly's house, Rob was helping them renovate their house, which is a very nice thing to do. That is a very nice thing. I know. And so Jonathan kept texting Jason and saying, like, I really need to talk to your friend, Rob. I really need to talk to Rob. And Jason was like, what the heck is going on? So he went outside and called Jonathan and was like, dude, what is going on? Like, why do you need to talk to Rob? And that's when Jonathan told Jason that him and Sabrina were having an affair. And he was actually calling to, he wanted to talk to Rob because he wanted to ask Rob to let Sabrina go. So she could be with him. Okay. Yeah. So Jason hung up the phone and went inside and told Rob, like, look, I have something, you know, horrible to tell you. Um, so when Jason, when they, when police were like, who could have wanted to kill Rob? They didn't offer this guy who. So I'll, like, I'll kind of explain okay. why they waited. They So when Jason hung up, the phone and went inside um, to tell Rob, you know, look, they're having an affair. Rob was like, yeah, I know. Don't worry. We're handling it. You know what I mean? Because like affairs were not that shocking. Right. They had an open marriage. Marriage. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently this was not an agreed upon affair. You know, this wasn't like a swapping situation. This was a full on affair. But, and so Rob did take care of it and Sabrina and Jonathan stopped seeing each other and everyone just forgot about it. So that's kind of why they didn't really offer up Jonathan because they thought that it was like just something in the past and not a big deal and whatever, you know? So then two weeks after Rob's death, um, Kelly went to visit Sabrina. And you can imagine her shock when she saw that Jonathan was there. Uh-huh. Um, and Sabrina acted like he was just there to show, you know, support. But Kelly was pissed and she went home and told her husband about it. So when Jason hears this um, and then he gets this phone call from Jonathan saying that he has something to confess to them, he ends up calling the police and he fills them in on this whole situation. You need to, you okay. know, look in a, into Jonathan. At first, they're like, you know, it really, there's nothing to say that he murdered anybody. This could have just been an affair. You guys were swingers. Right. So at first, he didn't feel like the police were really taking him seriously, but they actually did end up looking into Jonathan. And when they did, they found that he had a gun registered to him that actually matched the bullet that they had recovered from Rob's body. Uh-huh. And he also owned 
a Yamaha motorcycle, just like the one that they saw in the surveillance footage. Wait, what? No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then they were able to find from the path of the industrial complex, which was like a 90 minutes. I can't remember if it was 90 minutes or 90 miles, but it was far away from where they lived. Yeah. So, but so then they were able to like get all the gas station footage from any gas station leading on that path. And they were able to find footage at a gas station showing this motorcyclist drive up, get gas, then go inside and get a drink. And then for one second, he looked up at the cameras and then looked back down. And then when the police zoomed in, they saw that it was Jonathan Hearn. Man, that must be like so satisfying as a police officer to have like, you go through all of this footage and then to have the one second where you're like, gotcha, motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. And so they were able to get a warrant, search his phone records. And when they did, they found just thousands of text messages between him and Sabrina. Uh And they were definitely very romantic in nature. Like, I love you. I can't live without you. And then, um, but the messages stopped four months before the murder. So he wasn't messaging her at all on on, according to these phone records. And it showed that his cell phone did not ping anywhere near Rob's work site on the day of the murder. In fact, it had no activity at all, you know, which Uh actually looks like he shut it off or didn't take his phone with them. And they also saw that on the days leading up to and after the murder, he was regularly texting a number from a burner phone. Okay. So, yeah. So they ended up putting a wiretap on his phone so that they could find out who he's talking to like who is this who belongs to this burner phone mm-hmm. you know sure enough when they waited for him to have a conversation they saw that he was talking to Sabrina Limone mm. so she was on the other end of the burner and all of their calls were very romantic you know this is like weeks after her husband was killed and she's saying things like i feel so blessed i love you blah 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 they talked about they talked about God a lot and they talked it was like all a lot of the calls centered around praying together and talking about God and what uh-huh. God's plan is for them like uh-huh. insinuating that this was God's plan and then so detectives left a voicemail for Sabrina to call them back and then they listened in on the Jonathan's wiretap as she called Jonathan to tell them that the investigators had called her and they were like, okay, well let's say a prayer together. And Jonathan goes, please help us. God, please help us. Please help for Sabrina to have the right words. Like mm-hmm. when they talk, mm-hmm. I, I like, why would you do that if you weren't guilty? You right. know what I mean? So, so then um, she calls the detectives after the detectives told her that, um, that they didn't have any evidence and that they didn't have any leads. You know, they're just messing with her. Right. And then she, she immediately calls Jonathan back and she's like, everything's fine. They didn't ask me anything. So then the police mess with them a little more and they call her another time and they tell her like, oh, we get great news. We finally found DNA evidence. And she on the recording, she's like, oh, gosh, that's great. And mm-hmm. it just sounds so like, holy fuck. Yeah. She was like, wow, wow, okay. And then so she calls Jonathan and tells Jonathan, they just called me and said they found DNA. Um, But Jonathan convinces her that, you know, oh, the police are probably just using a ruse right now to try to get you to confess. They probably don't have 
any evidence, but they, so they kept talking on the phone day in and day out. They, over the next few days, they talked about God and they talked a lot about this Old Testament story of David and Bathsheba. Do you know it? Uh, no, <laughs> no. no. Um, <laughs> basically, it has to do, it's the story of like King David meeting a woman named Bathsheba and she's already married. Then the king ha- calls her to his palace and they have an affair. And then when she becomes pregnant, he has her husband brought back from war to sleep with her to hide their sin of adultery. I don't know. But when Uriah, her husband, refuses to sleep with Bathsheba, then the king orders Uriah to be put to the war's front lines to where he'll be killed so that the king can marry Bathsheba. Uh-huh. And just that's re- like a- basically reading the story. So he they're talking about how they're similar to that story. Okay. So it was like she, in order for the king to be with Bathsheba, they had to send the husband off to die, basically. Okay. So that they could be together. Right. So God's plan, you Uh know? And so the police are uh, listening in as they're talking, obviously, and then they decide to send a text message to Sabrina's real phone, not the burner phone, but her actual phone, showing a picture of Jonathan on a bike the day of the murder. But they don't tell her that they know who the guy on the motorcycle is, but they're like, we have our our person. Yeah, they don't say it's Jonathan. Um, So then they listen in as Sabrina then calls Jonathan about the text she just got. And then they immediately start um, praying for his freedom and for him to be able to live freely. So, yeah, they knew they were caught. So then, and even on the phone, so Sabrina starts hearing a clicking noise and she's like, do you hear that? Do you hear the clicking noise? Like, I think we're being, the wires are tapped. And then all of a sudden they start talking to each other. Like, I love you. And I'll always like, I'll always love you. Like they're saying goodbye to each other and that they're never going to, they know they're fucked. And they're like, I love you so much. And there's a plan for us and, you know, wait for me kind of whatever. And so then, so two days later, on November 18, 2014, both Sabrina Lamone and Jonathan Hearn are arrested for the murder of Rob Lamone. And after they were both interrogated, the DA filed murder charges against Jonathan, but they felt like they didn't have enough to file against Sabrina, so they just let her go completely. Wow. They decided that there wasn't enough evidence to charge her because she never actually spoke about the murder on the wiretaps yeah and there was no like dna evidence and when they questioned her and questioned her she always stood firm that she had zero knowledge that jonathan was planning to kill rob and even though she wasn't arrested apparently she lost all of her friends and like the wolf pack would not talk to her well yeah and then they um they she had to pull all um her kids out of school and they like relocated just because you know they were kind of just shunned. Um, so, which is a, a small price to pay for murdering someone. Right. Um, I mean, those poor kids, they don't deserve that. But also, they didn't deserve to lose their father right. also. So in late November, Jonathan actually pled not guilty to first degree murder. And he was held for trial. He was supposed to go to trial. And even though they were arrested three months after the murder, it took two years before the other uh, DA's office was ready to go to court. Yeah. So for two years, he sat in jail. And for two years, Sabrina was chilling. And she was actually supposed to testify against him. But 
less than two weeks before his trial went to court, Mm -hmm. um, Jonathan decides that he's ready to talk. And so he admitted that he pulled the trigger, but he said that Sabrina had helped plan the murder. So Jonathan, yeah. Jonathan said that Sabrina is the one that wanted Rob dead. She said apparently that divorce was not an option for her. Sabrina those says motherfuckers who are like, sorry, I feel like I'm saying motherfucker a whole lot. That's okay. <laughs> Let it out, Sally. Let it you out. You guys, I'm sorry. I'm usually <laughs> such a lady. Yeah, like people who are like, Divorce isn't an option, but murder I know. is. I know. Like, she's so religious, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that God is, well, you're a God and your belief of right. your religion, maybe swapping marital partners is not, doesn't quite fit that mold. So I don't, I think they would blink a, a little less at divorce than they would open marriages. Don't you think? I I would think. Apparently, Sabrina told Jonathan that the community and her friends would all shun her if she divorced Rob, and she wouldn't be able to be essentially in the wolf pack anymore, and she still wanted all of her friends, so in order to make that happen, Rob had it had to leave by death. And so, um, so Jonathan's family, what's crazy is so Jonathan's family totally believed that he was innocent and that he was falsely accused Mm -hmm. and they stood by him. So then when they heard him admitting to murdering Rob, they were completely shocked because here's this like super kind Christian, never thought that of their brother and son. And so the DA still didn't have any concrete proof the only, against Sabrina. The only thing they had was Jonathan's testimony. Right. So Jonathan's testimony gave him a plea agreement. Right. So when he, on January 9th, 2017, when he pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter, he was, only, in exchange for his testimony, he was only given a 25-year sentence. So wow. he'll be under the age of 50 when he gets out. Wow. Isn't that crazy? He actually pulled the trigger and killed this man. Yeah. And it was so premeditated and planned out. And then wait, there's more. There's more. (laughs) And so Sabrina was then arrested for murder and went to trial in September 2017. And the star witness, of course, was Jonathan. So for seven days, Jonathan would take the stand and describe their relationship, talked about how they first met meeting the group of friends, the affair. He talked about how she was, Sabrina was very unhappy in their marriage, um, that she felt like the um, open marriage was all Rob's idea and that he kept swapping her out. She was like a piece of meat kind of, you know, Uh and that that's against her religious beliefs, but that Rob was forcing her to do it. And he said that her disgust for Rob became his disgust for Rob and her pain became his pain. So he hated Rob for Mm -hmm. what he was doing to Sabrina, he said. And so he said that at one point they had made a joke about offing Rob, but over time they would make the joke again and again and again, and it just became kind of serious. And then the next thing you know, it became like plans, yeah, you know, to kill him. And the plan was that they would then later be together, obviously. So on the stand, Jonathan actually said they had actually first planned to kill Rob in April of 2014. He said that he purchased arsenic and he made a large batch of banana pudding laced with the arsenic mm-hmm. and he was like with vanilla wafers like he <laughs> went into detail and so 
she then put it into a small container and put it in Rob's lunch, but she ended up losing her nerve and called Rob and told him to not eat the pudding that the bananas had apparently gone bad. And so in August, 2014, they came up with the plan to kill Rob at work. And he testified that Sabrina gave him his Rob's work schedule, details of the railroad warehouse was located, the layout. And he said that he did a bunch of recon work in, in advance by going around there and looking at security cameras and stuff. Yeah. And so he also admitted that he changed the look of his motorcycle by adding flashing in a different color to the gas tank and changed out the exhaust pipes and and stuff just to try to make his Yamaha look less like a Yamaha. Right. And he also, when he committed the murder, he wore baggy clothes and a mask to disguise himself. And then he also walked with a limp on purpose to throw people off like Kaiser oh, Sose. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. I forgot that detail. Right. I don't know. This is just not very well thought out. He said that when he first saw Rob, When he went to kill him, he said that he had second thoughts, but that he prayed for God's guidance. And then he ended up found purpose and then continued with the murder. Like, I don't think God works that way. Right. So it's just just such a bullshit way to justify every terrible thing you do by saying that God led you to it. That just makes me so mad. So then he admitted that he made it. To look like a bur- uh, burglary and everything. Like I said, they, they still didn't have any evidence against her except for what he is saying. Because she never admitted the wiretaps don't prove it. It definitely points to the direction. Right. Like, I don't know why you would say some of the things that she said if she didn't do it. And so her defense attorney named Richard Terry, he, you know, of course pointed out the fact that it's so obvious that Jonathan's saying these things so that he's receiving like half a jail sentence. Right. And he said that, you know, just, yeah, she had an affair and they she never lied about having an affair. Like everybody knew she had this affair. Then he tried to paint Jonathan as of being a manipulator who would preyed on women. Because apparently, even though when Jonathan was texting Sabrina like crazy that they are meant to be together and they're so in love and that any fucking murdered for her. Yeah. He was dating another woman. What? At the same time. This woman named Jennifer Lentz, they brought her to the stand and she testified that they were dating at the exact same time all this shit was going down. So they were showing that it proved his pattern of manipulating women. Right. And that he used his, like, he knew that Sabrina had these feelings about her marriage and about God. And so then he used all the religious stuff as a way to kind of manipulate Sabrina. And then they brought Kelly, her old best friend, to the stand. Right. And Kelly testified against Sabrina. And then they tried to paint a picture that Kelly was in love with Rob. Because they had, you know, would swap. Yeah. They tried to discredit Kelly by saying that she wanted Sabrina to go to jail because she loved Rob or whatever. And so when Sabrina went to the stand, she talked about her marriage and her regrets. And she told them that her husband had been addicted to porn and that he was the one that wanted the open marriage lifestyle. And she didn't, that it didn't align with her religious views. Mm -hmm. And so she admits that she lied to the police in the beginning about like she never offered up the information about 
being in a relationship with Jonathan because she was embarrassed by it and she thought that it was over, yeah. you know, and that she never was going to leave Rob because he was the father of her children. And then when asked about the previous attempts, like with the pudding, she said that that, that was bullshit, that that never happened. And so she still swears and swears that she had nothing to do with it. Right. And so when the jury, it was nine women and three men, it took them seven hours to deliberate. And when they came back, they found Sabrina Lamone guilty of first degree murder conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and solicitation to commit murder. The only thing that she was found not guilty of was the previous attempted murder in regards to the banana pudding poisoning. And so... um, So did they have... Did they play tapes of her talking to... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I feel like that's probably what sealed it because I'm surprised that she was convicted. I really am too. Actually, what's crazy, so she was sentenced to 25 years to life. So she actually has a larger sentence than he does. Yeah. And they're both currently serving out their sentences in California. But when it came down to the sentencing, her children spoke, her family members spoke, you know, saying like, we need our mom. She would never have done this. And please don't put her away and blah, blah, blah. The judge actually said something in regards to like, I wouldn't have found her guilty, but the jury decided. Right. And now I have to sentence her. You know what I mean? So I think that the judge was surprised that she was found guilty. Yeah. I I mean, it just the... Based on the evidence, it's hard to convict someone on on supposition, you know, it just is like it's all circumstantial. It's all based on a guy who got something from it, who was obviously shady and manipulative. I mean, I don't know. She may have had something to do with it. It just is that it's just surprising that she was convicted. I know. Me too. I mean, I do think that she... Which obviously was like an accessory after the fact. She knew he had done it. That's surprising. Well, I mean, there is a chance that she didn't know what was going on. Then when after the fact, she kind of knew that it was Jonathan. Right. Still wanted to be with him. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. This is just definitely one of those like, not for me, not obvious black and white type situations. Right. But I do think it's bullshit, though, that he has a lesser sentence than she does. Yeah, I mean, that's just like, you know, that's how the law works. It's like if you take responsibility, you get a lesser sentence. And if you roll the dice and go to trial, then you basically have – there's not as much wiggle room. You can't plead down. And a lot of murder or whatever she was charged with have mandatory sentences. So I'm sure he pled to something lesser. Like It is in the fairness quotient since he pulled the trigger and did all the planning and did all the stuff it seems crazy that he is going to be out of jail before yeah. she is yeah i know that's life yeah that's their it is unfair legal system that's our legal system <laughs> ah. so what do you got um well that was that was a nutso story mm-hmm. that was a good one good job thanks man hey jen hey sally are you ready for a love story yes this is a friend love story. Oh, friend love. I know. I've been, you know, for my whole life, but also just especially during the pandemic, I've been really leaning on my girlfriends for sanity. 
And and I just, you know, I just love a story of the bond between friends and especially female friends, but, you know, all friends. I think it's just it's important and beautiful um, and can be just as beautiful as any kind of romantic love story. And so my story today, uh, I got my information from People.com by Rachel DeSantis, an article in the Times of Israel by Matt Lubavik, an article in the Washington Post by Sydney Page, in Global News by Mark Armstrong, and also an interview with Betty Grabenshkoff. Grabenshkoff. Okay. I'm definitely going to say her last name wrong, um, and I apologize. Okay, so this is a story about the enduring bond of childhood friendships. So Betty Grabenshkoff. And that's the only time I'm going to say that again. And Anne-Marie Warrenberg met when they were just six years old. And in many ways, they were just like any childhood best friends. From the ages of six to nine, they spent all of their time together. They went to school together. They went to the same synagogue. They took ballet lessons together. They played dress up. And the two would spend hours and hours just hiding out in each other's rooms, playing games and telling each other stories. And they were just normal kids, except for a few important details. Both Betty and Anne-Marie were Jewish. They lived in Berlin, and this was the late 1930s. So the reason the pair spent so much time together in each other's homes was because they were not allowed to go to playgrounds or swimming pools Mm -hmm. or theaters because they were Jewish. Betty said, the other children went off to picnics and all that. And I said to my mother, I want to go too. They're having such a good time. They're singing, they're marching. And she said, that's not for us. We're Jews and we have to be very careful. So in 1938, November of 1938, both girls' families were in Berlin during Kristallnacht, which is German for the night of broken glass. And Kristallnacht was a night of destruction and terror, which was aimed at Jewish citizens throughout Germany. And it was carried out by Nazi forces and civilians. And it's called that because of the glass that was shattered all over Germany as over 7,000 Jewish homes, hospitals, and schools were demolished by sledgehammers and then ransacked. Mm. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and incarcerated into concentration camps, including Anne-Marie's father. Anne-Marie actually was the one who opened the door on that night and found herself face-to-face with soldiers in black jackets who had come to arrest her father. Oh, my God. I know. And just a little nine-year-old girl. I can't imagine (sighs) how terrified. So Betty said in an interview to the Times Israel, she said, I remember a very sheltered, happy, and carefree early childhood in Berlin. All that changed in November of 1938 during the events of Kristallnacht when my family and I sat on the floor of our apartment with the lights turned off. My sister and I were told by my parents to be very quiet so that our neighbors would think we were not home. While the glass shattered in the streets and our synagogues burned, I finally realized what rampant anti-Semitism meant. That night, I understood why my Aryan friends had turned against me, threw stones at me, and called me a dirty Jew. My parents, who tried to shield us from the reality of what was happening to the Jewish people, could not do so any longer. Even in later years, it was too painful for them to talk about. The memory of walking on the shattered glass of familiar Berlin streets a few days after the night of broken glass is forever burned in my brain. Still today, decades later, that sound brings back better memories. So this event was seen as the prelude to the Holocaust and to the World War II. 
Amory's father spent a month in that concentration camp before he thankfully managed to escape. And Betty said that when Anne-Marie's father came out of the camp, he looked like an old man, like he was completely changed. Oh, I'm sure. So for both Betty and Anne-Marie's families, as well as many Jewish families, Kristallnacht was the final warning that things were about to get much, much worse. And many Jewish people did anything they could to get out of Germany at that time. But of course, the options were growing increasing, increasingly sh- slim, like many countries were no longer accepting people. Betty wrote, my father repeatedly tried to get our family out of Germany, but was unsuccessful until we found we could possibly immigrate to Shanghai, China, which at the time had an open door policy for people entering China. After using bribery to obtain tickets on a Japanese ship, the Kashima Maru, we escaped from Germany in May of 1939. My father had received a summons from the Gestapo to appear before them on May 21st, 1939. We left Berlin two days before that date. Had my father not slipped a large amount of money to the shipping agent, we would not have had ship tickets on time, and I definitely would not be here today. We left behind nearly all of our relatives, our home, our belongings, and our whole way of life. So before they left... Anne Marie and Betty's fathers took them to a schoolyard so that the two best friends could say goodbye. They cried, they hugged, and they said, we'll write letters to each other. We'll always be friends. Betty's immediate family arrived in Shanghai in May of 1939, became part of the 20,000 people who were called the Shanghai Jews. She left behind dozens of family members who couldn't make it out, including all four grandparents who were murdered in the concentration camps. Betty wondered if this is what had happened to Anne-Marie's family too. But she never got confirmation. So life in Shanghai was hard. At first, it was somewhat manageable. The family was able to rent a room while many lived in refugee camps. The part of the town where they lived was very poor, but they had this community of Jewish and Chinese people who were living and working together side by side. They had shops and synagogues, and Betty and her sister went to school. But after Pearl Harbor, Japanese took over Shanghai and moved all of the Jewish people into a ghetto. And Betty wrote, Our lives became more difficult as the war went on. Medications were almost impossible to obtain. Food was scarce. People were selling what was left of their clothes and jewelry outside on the street to get some money. Plus, there was constant worry about the fate of our relatives left behind in Europe. In August of 1945, the war was over, and that was when Betty's family learned of everyone who had been killed in the Holocaust. There were list of names that were released by the Red Cross of the people who had died, but they were incomplete. And so Betty scoured these lists looking for the names of her family and for Anne-Marie or her family. She didn't see them, but she knew that didn't mean that they had survived. It just meant that their names weren't on the list. So in 1948, Betty met and married a young Russian immigrant who had lived in Shanghai, and they were just about to welcome their first child in 1950, when the Chinese Communist Revolution happened, forcing Betty and most foreigners to leave China. So after many difficulties, Betty and her new husband managed to relocate to Sydney, Australia, just barely in time for her first child to be born there. And then three years later, Betty and her husband were able to immigrate to America, settling in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And that is where she raised her five children, seven grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Oh, wow. And over the years, Betty frequently gave talks about her experience 
Uh, she regularly visited schools. She wrote a book about her life. And she dedicated a chapter in her memoir to Anne Marie, her best childhood friend. And every time that Betty gave a talk about her experiences in Nazi Germany, she would mention Anne Marie. And she would talk about how she was her best childhood friend and she would wonder where she ended up. And she always said her name because she wanted, she was like, maybe someday someone will know something and can tell me what happened to her. And so she, she searched the databases of Jewish survivors and she could never find any information on Anne Marie or her family. And then, Jen, uh-huh. a woman named Ida Gordon happened to attend a webinar during the pandemic, this was just in this past November, hosted wow. by the Latin American Network for the Teaching of the Shoah. And the event, which marked the anniversary of Kristallnacht, featured a guest speaker who shared a detailed testimony about her experience. The speaker was a last-minute replacement for someone who had to drop out, and the woman talked about her family's horrific experience during Kristallnacht and the subsequent loss of her father's business and their home and how the family had finally obtained visas to Haiti and had eventually made their escape to Santiago, Chile. And Ida Gordon is fluent in Spanish, and so she listened to this woman speak in Spanish about her experiences. And Ida Gordon worked as an indexer for the USC Shoah Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization founded by Steven Spielberg, which produces and preserves audiovisual testimony of Holocaust survivors. So they have taped Holocaust survivors, over 55,000 people talking about their experience because they want to keep this history alive. And so Ida, when she listened to the speaker, she was intrigued by the woman's stories. And she was like, I wonder if the Shoah Foundation has taped this woman's testimony. So she started searching the archive. And while she didn't find anything from the speaker, she did find her name mentioned in someone else's testimony. It was the 1997 testimony of Betty. And the speaker, of course, was Anne-Marie Warmberg. Oh, my God. I know. So Anne-Marie and her parents had escaped Germany several months after Betty's family, just days before the start of the Second World War. They were the only members of her family to get out safely. Everyone else on both sides was killed in the death camps. After the family settled in Chile, they learned Spanish, and eventually Anne-Marie changed her name to Anna Maria, which is part of why it was so hard to find her because she had changed her name. So Ida listened to Betty's story, her 1997 testimony, it was on tape, and she paused when she heard Betty talk about her long-lost best friend, Anne-Marie Warmberg. And in that interview, Betty had said, I never knew what happened to her. I always wonder if maybe she's somewhere and can hear this. So Ida dug deeper, and the more she found out, the stronger the confirmation was that these were the two best friends who had lost each other over 82 years ago. Wow. So, you know, Anna Marie had changed her name, and also Betty at the time had gone by the name Ilsa. And I don't know if it's like Betty is a nickname or if she changed it for some other reason, but that Mm. was like part of why they could never connect with each other. So Ida ended up joining forces with the Florida Holocaust Museum, where Betty often spoke, and the Interactive Jewish Museum of Chile, where Anna Maria often spoke, to facilitate a virtual reunion between the two Holocaust survivors. And when the women heard that the other was still alive, they were both shocked and delighted. And so on November 19th, 2020, Betty got on Zoom from her home in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Anna Maria signed on from her home in Santiago. 
And family and the organizers kind of worried that this might be awkward for these two 91-year-old women to, like, connect. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had such different lives. Uh, Anna Maria spoke Spanish and Betty spoke English. But the two started chatting right away in German and their shared language. And Betty said it was such a miracle. It was like no time has passed. Of course, 82 years makes a difference, but more or less, we just picked up where we left off. They talked about their escape from Germany, their parents, their husbands, and their children. In the first few minutes, Anna Maria held up a small book that had a photograph of Betty with a note that Betty had written in it eight decades earlier. The note said, When one day in later years you take this small book in hand, think about how nice it was that we knew each other. And she had kept it all that time. And so at the end of the call, both of the women's whole families – Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren all joined the, in on the Zoom to toast the reunion and the friendship. And both women introduced their sons and their daughters, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And Betty just kept saying, look what we've done, Anna Marie. Look what we've done. Wow. I know. And Betty's daughter, Jennifer, said, this is a total gift of her life. All of us were just stunned to watch the two women connect so quickly and start laughing like they were still nine years old. So since that call, the two now video chat every Sunday morning, and they email and they call and text throughout the week to check in. Betty said, we'll never be able to fully catch up. So they have plans to meet up in Miami and be together for Rosh Hashanah in September. They have vowed that they will stay healthy so that they can reunite in person. And Betty said, I know, Betty said, I just want to hug her again. It would be the culmination of a lifelong journey. And Betty says that finding her friend is a miracle and a mitzvah for us both. And Anna Maria said, I don't know if it was fate or the USC Shoah Foundation that has given me back my childhood friend. I don't know. But this has been a great gift, which at this point in my life, I am boundlessly grateful for. I love that. Oh my God. I can't wait for them to meet. Do we meet each other? I know. They're I have the pictures are adorable and they're they're just I just think it's just so amazing that they both held on to each other and the memory of each other and the hope for each other all of those years. And then this just like random occurrence helped them connect yeah. to each other. And the fact that they both both of their families got out is like a miracle. And um I just it's I just think there is something about there's something about girlfriends and there's something about childhood friends that really people who knew you when. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Cuz I feel like in, uh, for me I feel like when you're a child is when you are your most pure self. Yeah. Who you really are before you're like influenced or swayed or you're just you're just your most pure innocent self and it's like that's why childhood friends are so important like lifelong childhood friends yeah people who knew you before you had all your baggage and shit like who knew you as just like a free silly goofball (laughs) yeah i love that oh my god i can't wait for them to get back together i know i know good story sally thanks should we get into something dumb and something we love yes i think we should Okay. Uh, well, I'll start. For something dumb, I feel like it kind of piggybacks off of the story that you told because I can't believe that we are in the year 2020 and we are still dealing with xenophobia and racism. I 
I'm sure that you guys have all heard by now this when we're recording this happened two days ago um 21 year old Robert Aaron Long walked into several businesses here in Atlanta and opened fire killing eight people um six of eight of the victims were women of Asian descent and I'm floored by the fact that the police are calling this um how did they say they said that he this wasn't racial that he had a bad day right total fucking bullshit and i'm just um heartbroken mm-hmm. for the victims and their families and i'm heartbroken for asians everywhere who have been facing such racism and hatred especially fueled by the climate that has been curated by four years of Donald Trump's presidency. We're still feeling the effects. Representative B. Nguyen, who is a representative here in Georgia, she said it best when she said that this is the intersection of gender-based violence, misogyny, and xenophobia. Yeah. And that is exactly right. That's what this, this, it's one of the worst mass killing in U.S. um, in almost two years. Yeah, um, it's and- it's uh it's heartbreaking and I it's you know, of course it hits close to home because it literally is close to home for us. So yeah one of the locations I lived um off Cheshire Bridge Road, mm-hmm. my house when I was in my early twenties was like three doors down from there. Yeah. And I just can't believe like I mean it it's just everywhere in America now and it's hard breaking Um, it's just the same story that you hear over over of this white male fragility of like i had a bad day and i didn't i was tempted by women and i had a fetish for whatever i'm like who knows what it is but we all know what it is like it's this Mm -hmm. it's this racism it's the viewing of um women and especially asian women as like sexual objects and he felt like he was tempted and he couldn't you know it reminds me of your your crazy story of the like people who were like well i'm religious so i can't get divorced or like i'm religious so i can't have sexual needs and and then you take that out on other people and you punish the people who you think are tempting you or whatever it just is yeah it's such a sick and sad story and we have let white men believe that they deserve to have a life of that had no heartache or hard times or even just the hardest little part of it. And when they're not, when their life isn't that way, they are looking for someone to blame. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just so sick and sad. And I just am um, heartbroken for those women, for people in the Asian community who feel unsafe. And yeah, it's, it's awful. So I know. And what I was going to say for something I love is um, all of the people, there's always the people that are stepping up and doing what they can to help. I'm going to name some Georgia-based organizations. There are organizations all over the world, just research it, but um, right now in Georgia, considering it happened here, are organizations that you can donate to if you feel like you want to support, which I hope you do. And one is the AAAJ, which is the Asians Americans Advancing Justice, um, the AAF, which is the Asian American Advocacy Fund, mm-hmm. and the CPACS, which is the Center for Pan-Asian Community Services. And they provide critical support to the community through legal services, police advocacy, and life-saving resources for new immigrants and refugees. So if you can donate, um, please do. Yeah. Thank you for finding those resources. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, 
I go- I did Google it. <laughs> Good job, Google. Good job, Jen, Googling. <laughs> so my something dumb is obviously that as well. It's forefront, I think, in so many people's minds and um, especially ours living in Atlanta. And yeah, I think that's that's the dumb thing. And the thing that I love is, of course, the helpers and um, the organizations that you that you mentioned. And I'm going to donate as soon as we are done. But the other thing I love is that Jen, what? this morning... I got my first vaccine. Yay. Yeah. So, um, so So excited for you. I'm so excited for me. I'm excited. I get my tomorrow morning. Uh, I, yeah, my brothers and my sister-in-law and my dad and Ben's parents are, everybody's getting, starting to get vaccinated. Um, and it just is like, whew. Feels like I've been holding my breath for a year. So um, I'm just really, um, you know what? I'm grateful to science today. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I really just hope that I'm, I'm. we talked about this before. I'm like, you know, it's it's the whole like reemerging into life is I'm nervous for it, but I am excited for it and excited to see how the world is going to open up. And, uh, and it feels like one step in that direction with this shot in my arm. Yes. Yes. You're on your way, Sally. I'm away, and you're about you're to get on, on your way. Your way. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Bring it on. All right. So, you guys, right. that's our episode. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot to unpack there. A lot to unpack. A lot. This is a very, this is a very special episode. <laughs> a very of dumb love. special episode. Episode ninety three. Um, and we'll see you on the other side at ninety four. Yeah. So you know. Uh, find us on all the places we're at dumb love podcast you can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com you can write a review you can subscribe you can tell a friend all of that would be amazing and we love you so much yep and don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love dum 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 dum